0: There's a lot of dialogue in a family engagement field about making sure that your first communication with the family isn't about something negative. And you know, don't call the family for the first time to say, hey, your kid cheated on a test or your kid didn't show up for school or whatever. Um, and the same goes for families, too. If you want the school to understand your child, it's really, really helpful to talk about the good things about your child before you come up to school and criticize the teacher for something.
1: Welcome to Rotten Apples, where we share the best ideas in education, whether it's learning space design, restorative practice, or simply teacher self-care. We're learning from the experts who cut through the BS and find out what's really working and what's not in our classrooms and schools, making St. Louis home to the best educators in practice today. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 14. We will be talking with Amy De la Hunt about parent engagement in schools. It has been a crazy couple of weeks, I know, and a lot of schools are just kind of getting their footing now around distance learning and uh, additional resources and you know cr- preparing some sort of homeschooling model. It, it varies from you know one school to the other, one district to the other. And so hopefully everybody is first of all staying safe and that you have all the things that you need or at least most of what you need uh, to carry on as best you can over the next few weeks as we are all under this stay at home order in the St. Louis area. So I went back and edited this uh, because we actually recorded it about 10 days before the first known case of coronavirus hit the region. And it was interesting kind of listening back on it because a lot of the information, we were talking about how this relationship between parents and schools can be precarious even in the best of circumstances, and now it is really going to be test to its very, very limit. And so a lot of the information is still highly pertinent even in times of emergency, like what we're experiencing. But it'll be interesting to watch as we see schools that are doing online learning or distance learning of some kind where parents are much more involved because we talk a lot, Amy and I talk about sort of this isolation that these two different environments have even though they share a kid in common. And now a lot of that's going to be broken down. A lot of parents are going to be able to see what's going on in their kids' classrooms much more clearly. There's going to be some... Real support for teachers. I've already seen that you know, on Twitter and a lot of other places of people who just can't believe that schools have been able to turn it around so fast and uh, put things up, it's put out fires as quickly as they can. And then there are going to be others that... Uh, as they see the things that their kids are learning, are not going to be particularly happy about the way that that works or the way that it's being deployed. And it was interesting to see a lot of the principals send notices out to parents saying, please be patient with us. We're learning this. We're doing you know, the best we can. Everybody's doing this differently, and we're just trying to make it through. And so what will be interesting to watch is you know, six months from now, How will this experience change what Amy and I have talked about? And so what I might do is actually have her on again in the fall to see what has occurred after all of this is over and what advice might be a little bit different that she would offer now as opposed to, you know, even before this crisis hit. So a lot's going to be changing, but for now, this is kind of where we are. is a fascinating conversation around the different things that parents need to do better to be supportive of the school, things that schools need to do better to try and understand what's going on with parents. And uh, we talk a lot about certainly... Cultural and economic divides, and how these things are manifest very differently in different school environments. So it was a great conversation. I look forward to having it, and for doing a follow up in the fall. Please stay safe, everybody, and I hope to talk to you soon. Okay, hey everybody, we are coming back after a little
2: bit of a hiatus, and today we have a guest I'm really excited about. I did not even know her until about a month ago, and uh, we got together and had a fantastic chat about. Parents and schools, and how we can really work on this relationship. So, Amy De La Hunt, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you, Amy. So, why don't you get started by just telling us a little bit about who you are and uh, how you got into this field? Because you're not actually in education, but you know a lot about this relationship, don't you?
0: Yes, I am not an educator with a capital E. I guess I'm an educator with a small e. <laughs> um, my mom was a teacher, so I grew up very familiar with educational settings. I spent a lot more time in school than anybody else <laughs> except my mom. Um, so I had a comfort level in schools, but my background is in journalism. I have an undergraduate degree in communications and a master's degree in journalism. And I spent a lot of time at daily newspapers, magazines, online sites, curriculum developers, any place that needed writing or editing um, was a potential client of mine or employer of mine. And about 10 years ago now, um, one of my clients was the Parents as Teachers National Center, which um, some people may know is headquartered here in Maryland Heights. So we have a lot of local Parents as Teachers programs, but the national office was working on some curriculum and they needed An editor who didn't know much about child development, and (laughs) I fit the bill. (laughs) I was kind of clueless. And so they brought me in to help take all this really heavy research-based information and turn it into something for families. And their focus is on prenatal through kindergarten-age kids, but that really um, sparked a whole nother progression in my career of digging into family engagement, both at that age and at the school age. My kids at that time were early elementary age, and Um, parents as teachers focused a lot on family engagement because they were preparing all these families who knew a lot about their own children and could advocate. And then they would get to the schools and the schools would be like, "Um, (laughs) we're not sure what to do with you parents who are like articulate and well-informed and really want to be partners with us. And so um, that was where my interest in writing and telling stories and helping inform people really intersected with the educational field. And then as my kids got older, I continued to have experiences with the school, some good and some not good. I continued to work with parents as teachers. Um, so I've had by now, yeah, almost 10 years of really looking at the issues from both sides around family engagement.
2: And that's a couple of things that are really interesting about that to me. Number one, that they had the foresight to bring in somebody who was not in the field because it—you you you don't see the gaps in your plan. You know, when you're too close to a project, you just think like an educator and you don't necessarily think like a parent and or, you know, somebody from outside the community. And so bringing somebody in, I feel like that's already, you know, a really helpful tip when it comes to parent engagement is trying to look at it any way you can, you know, through a really different lens. And 10 years is a really long time, you know, to be doing that. So I'm sure you could talk about this all day. But what are some of the most interesting things that you've learned in that 10 years? Um, I learned a lot about child development, so I am no longer the coolest
0: person <laughs> that I was 10 years ago, <laughs> even though I was a parent already. And I had been through parents as teachers. Um, but the field of um, neuroscience and brain development has just exploded so much. It started really 20 years ago or a little bit more. But in the past 10 years, there's been this huge explosion in what they know about how children's brains develop Um from prenatally through age five. But then again, in adolescence, there's this huge, even longer period from like age 12 to 25, where adolescent brains are just um, amazing. Things are happening in there. And then they know more about adults' neuroplasticity as well. And so um, in working with materials for parent educators and parents that were about child development, I just was exposed to all this remarkably interesting material. And I realize through some of the testing that we did at parents as teachers when we developed products we would kind of field test it and parents were just hungry for this information too when we would go and do um take it in front of groups for example we would have these kind of high concept high vocabulary level presentations about um you know synapses in the brain and all of these like really complex things and parents would be on their phone, Googling them or like taking notes about it so they could remember it. And we had parent educators who would run into parents months after these presentations, and they would be like, hey, I remember this. And my friends are so sick of me talking about neurogenesis. (laughs) And these were like North city families. They were not any kind of people who had been exposed to this information before, but it really clicked with them and it helped them understand why their kids had the behaviors that they did at certain times and you know, what motor drive was what motor drive was causing their baby to want to roll over all the time or climb all the time and how that was um, impacting their family's life. It wasn't just that the child was being a brat or that the child, you know, wanted to be bad. These children had this drive developmentally that was um, coming from their brain. And so that seeing parents and how excited they got learning this material, um, that was probably the biggest thing. And then the second thing that I loved. is just the strengths-based approach that's out there to so much education. Um, I think I had experienced a little bit more of a deficits approach um, when I was in the, being educated in schools. It was more about you know um, addressing addressing deficits or things that you know people needed to have or. Um, nonprofit organizations may be coming in and serving a community and and not taking advantage so much of the strengths that were already there. But I think parents, teachers, and other organizations have really come to be very strengths-based and looking at what families already are offering to their child, how they're already taking care of their child, meeting their child's needs. And that ties in really closely with my journalism work because solutions-oriented journalism is a huge push right now, too, which is not only telling the negative stories, but talking about what's working, kind of the things the media were getting bashed for, all along as being too negative and too confrontational and too controversial. Um, There's really a movement to tell things from a strengths-based perspective. So I feel really fortunate that I'm seeing all of this um, positivity around me. You know, people saying this could work, or there's this idea that's really great, and let's talk about it. So that is probably the place where the two fields intersect the most that I'm most excited about.
2: Well, and with parents as teachers and organizations that are like it, their goal is to empower people. And there's nothing more disempowering than just a ton of bad news and no solution, no you know viable way of fixing it, no suggestion, just, hey, it sucks, so let's move on. You know? I mean, that just, it, may, it does, it makes people feel despondent and parents have never had opportunities in the past, really, to feel um, knowledgeable, necessarily, or especially empowered. I mean, that's just a, a totally new concept, I feel like, to, to some parents. And so what always impressed me about it, uh, because my kids were very little when I was exposed to uh, parents as teachers, it wasn't it's very, it felt like it was very different with some parents versus others. Some already know this stuff. As you point out, others had not been exposed to any of this before. And we have to, and we've had this conversation before where, I mean, you have to go through six months of training and you have to take two different tests just to drive a car, but to raise a human, you don't have to do anything <laughs> except deliver it, you know, and that's it. <laughs> so it's, it's it's kind of looking at, I mean, it, it's exciting to see what these organizations are doing to support them. But at the same time, you kind of look at it and think, God, we should have been doing this like a long time ago. We should have been helping parents out. So you said that, especially in the last few years, parents as teachers has gone through, you know, a lot of different changes. There's a lot of, you point out a lot of new science around it. And uh, the neuroscience in particular, I've noticed that too. There's just so much that's coming out. And I don't think it's going to slow down with all of the technology, you know, or around um mm-hmm.
1: medicine these
2: days but so given the some of the changes the parents as teachers specifically has gone through um, what do you think it's how do you think it's doing you know as a support system what are the things that are going well for it and what are the things they think that we still need to work on
0: um, so i was the director of product development at parents As teachers up until about 18 months ago when I um, returned to full-time self-employment. So they're still one of my clients. But um, I was there during a time when parents as teachers underwent a pretty drastic change to be much more focused on um, being family-driven and letting the parents decide what they wanted to talk about with the parent educators rather than having like a prescriptive thing where if the child was 18 months old, you talked about these topics. So it was much more about family well-being and what the parents actually wanted information about. And that just made the organization so much more fulfilling to parents. You know, parents actually felt like partners during the visit. And that change, I guess it was around 2011. And that change has really been made the organization much more dynamic. And that was one of the reasons that they were able to dive into this family engagement work because they didn't come in knowing all the answers. They came in with a lot of questions and they were able to admit that sometimes the partnerships that even we at the national office had engaged in didn't work out. And um, we had to really step back and say, why didn't this work on paper? We were such a good partnership and often the answer was because we didn't have the same goals and we didn't have the same um, approach. We didn't have, maybe we weren't both looking at it from a strengths-based perspective. You know, there are some educational organizations um, who see parents as kind of getting in the way and who see kids as someone who needs to be fixed rather than educated. And parents as teachers had run into that too. And that was one of the places, oh, I, I should back up a tiny bit and say that um, one of my favorite projects at parents as teachers was a book about family engagement. And um, so when I talk about the book, it's the book called Engaged, Building Intentional Partnerships with Families. And it came out um, last year in late July in 2019. Um, so, But one of the reasons that the book came into being in the first place was that parents as teachers realized that many family engagement strategies actually started the assumed that everybody was coming into the conversation with the same approach to respect and responsibility and generosity and persistence and accessibility and trust, and that all of these kind of underlying necessary factors had already been established, and we realized that wasn't the case. A lot of times when parents and educational organizations come together, they don't have any background together, and parents come in maybe having had bad experiences in the education system and educators come in maybe not really understanding parents' perspective very well. And so um, this book really addresses those early conversations. And I think parents as teachers was coming from a place where they could address that because they were no longer coming in as the expert in the conversation. They had really opened it up to say, look, we can learn from you as a partner. What do you want to tell us? And so this book helps other organizations have that same conversation that parents as teachers, parent educators had learned how to have.
2: Yeah, I think that's... um being able to establish trust by recognizing that parents are partners is a, it, it should on the outside seem obvious, but I think a lot of people who work organizations, you know, I've worked for universities, um, other people who use a lot of research in school districts, um, they just figured that they know a lot about this topic and that this should apply to everybody and what we're learning uh, overall is that yes a strategy or um, a suggestion or anything might apply to the vast majority of kids but you're always going to find those ones that this did not work. It should have worked but it didn't and that's where parents can kind of fill you in. They could kind of tell you you know we could have told you that we've watched this kid since birth and we knew that was gonna work and some, some educators seem good at that you know they seem to recognize it the ones that i work at it's so hard being in education as a professional and then being a parent it's like two completely different, it's a split personality. I turn into a completely different person when my kid's education (laughs) is on the line than, you know, when I'm talking about something professionally. So it's, I can see how that would be really, really hard. Um, So it's impressive, first of all, that organizations um, and parents as teachers specifically have even recognized that and can take a a little bit of a step back and listen a little more than telling. And that's, I think, going to go a really, really long way um, with parents that, you know, maybe, feel a little intimidated, you know, by the entire educational process, especially if they did not have good experiences themselves um, as kids.
0: I have the same struggle, you know, knowing what I know about family engagement sometimes makes it harder for me to engage. And right now I'm on a task force, I'm in the Lindbergh school district, and we have a task force going to talk about the middle school experience. And I have a middle schooler. And so it's, sometimes it's really hard for me to come in and take off my parent hat a little bit so I can hear what the educators are saying, but still advocate well for all the other parents who don't have the luxury of being on that task force. And I, I'm sure the teachers find the same thing where they're looking at me like your kid just was you know just had an in-school suspension and now I have to look at you across the table um so that it is hard like it's a really hard thing to do this family engagement work and I think that that maybe isn't always acknowledged either that um that everybody has to bring a lot of energy and patience and compassion and persistence and um and those are really like you, you really have to um Put your heart in it, into it, under and understand other people too.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that you know we have to do that all the time. It gets exhausting, <laughs> so it's <laughs> important to do. Yeah. It's important to try to understand. So, um, kind of looking at this from that you know school and parent lens here. First, looking at the schools. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see schools making? You know, when they have these interactions with with parents.
0: Um, I think one thing, and I've personally encountered this too, is to have a mentality of making yourself a fortress. Like, you know what you're doing, you know what you want to do, you know what you want to achieve, and parents and kids come in and kind of mess it up. And so um, there was a researcher named Anne Henderson, and about a decade ago or a little more, she coined the term fortress schools related to family engagement. And I think there are still quite a few schools that have that fortress mentality and it makes it really hard for parents to break through. It makes the schools unwilling or unlikely to trust parents as partners because they're worried they're going to come in and mess things up. So I think that that's um, a big challenge for teachers. I think a lot of times also um, certain (laughs) a certain level, like a certain administrator or superintendent might come in and have great ideas about family engagement, but then to actually get it to trickle down to the classroom level or even the staff level, you know, the cafeteria staff and the bus drivers and everybody to get everybody on the same page like that. um, There's just not enough time spent on professional development and education and helping make sure that everybody really understands this new, um, more of a partnership approach. And so I think schools could really do themselves a favor by making sure that that is um, driven home to everyone through, and in, not in a way that's like beating it into them, but in a way that makes them excited and passionate for working with families. I think those are two things that schools really could do a better job
2: of. And it's it's interesting when you talk about fortress schools, because that brings to mind a, you know, like really scary, overbearing, you know, kind of place where it's really um, obvious. But when I think of that sort of situation, it plays out in subtle ways that I wonder if the school even recognizes that it's happening. And the best example that I can think of is a lot of this language around trauma-informed and restorative justice. And, you know, and it, it makes a lot of sense. You, if you have a kid that's struggling with all kinds of other things outside of the school, they're not going to be able to come in and learn. And the language around a lot of that is, we may be the only safe, comfortable place that this kid goes to all day. And that might be true, but it really discredits everything else <laughs> that goes on in this child's life. And that may or may not be true. They may have a, a very supportive, you know, relationship at home. That what that kind of language does is it kind of builds this mentality that we are the guardians of these children. And so I wonder if that does not really help them, you know, when they do have to listen, you know, to parents and community leaders who to challenge some of those ideas a little bit, especially if there is a racial or an economic divide, you know, between the teachers and uh, the students and their communities. I feel like that's going to make it, you know, even worse in some cases.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And in conjunction with the book, we actually at Parents as Teachers National Center partnered with an organization out of Texas called um, Strong Fathers, Strong Families. And there's a podcast that they do called Intentional Partnerships. And there's an episode about that um, that aired last fall. And so you can put the link online about this. But it, one of the chapters in the book is accessibility. And this episode is talking about accessibility, not in terms of, you know, does your school have wheelchair ramps or is there transportation or childcare for meetings, but it's talking about the language that's used and how people at the school talk about the things that, the topics that come up when they're speaking with parents and what, and it's kind of what you said, you know, you might be talking about something and using a bunch of acronyms and making assumptions about what you know or what the other side knows or what you're doing and what the other side is not doing. And those are accessibility issues as well because they make it feel like the school is not as open as it could be.
2: Yeah, and it even, in a, in a situation or a, a school that doesn't experience, you know, a whole lot of trauma or anything like that, my kids um, go to um, Maplewood, Richmond Heights, and for the most part, they don't have, I mean, we definitely have, you know, a lot of, we're getting a lot more gentrification um, coming up, and that's um, created some unique challenges, but even among that... I attended a workshop a while ago where uh, unpersonalized learning, when teachers were talking about how much choice and agency students should have over their learning. Should they be able to select from a menu of different options when they're trying to learn a concept? And one of the challenges from a teacher in that group was really interesting to me. She said that, um, I feel like this isn't teaching kids that life isn't always about having a million different choices that, um, you know, sometimes you have to do things that you may not necessarily want to do. And I remember, and this is where that switch got flipped and all of a sudden Amy bitch mom shows up and I'm like, I just look at her and I said, I don't need you to do that. I, I, I got that. I'm the mom. I can teach them about the hardness of life. I need you to teach her math. That's your job. And I I hate the whole stay in your lane mentality, but that's the thing that (laughs) kind of just popped up for me. I'm like wait a second, where, where did the roles get so diluted here? So that they, I mean, I, and I, but that's my opinion. My husband was like, yes, they should be teaching her, you know, that life is hard and like <laughs> So even yes, within a marriage, we don't, <laughs> we don't agree on this stuff. <laughs> so then I like start to really feel sorry for schools. It's like, oh my God, they've got to deal with peers that don't even see the same way on this situation, much less, you know, so it it's, it's really a, an, it's a it's a problem that we need to look at, you know, for sure. but, um, I, I can see how that's really kind of challenging for schools because they don't always have a clear mission. and you know, and, an understanding of what they want to do, and it seems like they have they feel compelled to do absolutely everything to make this child into something wonderful and perfect, not realizing that there are other systems surrounding that child and that family that need to step up and and do this, you know as well, and taking on too much when they're constantly worried about mental health of students, which is which is important. it's a priority and they should look at it when they've got those issues. But when they're all focused on that, unless they're hiring new people, they're not learning new teaching strategies. They're not teaching the kids the content that they need. I mean, there's only so much that a school can do, you know, in that circumstance. And so it's, I feel simultaneously frustrated by it, but I also understand how it can be challenging. Yeah, I
0: think the other thing that, um, another factor that complicates it is child development, because not all 13-year-old children are at exactly the same place in their development. And so that's another issue that's so complicating. You know, you have in every grade, you have so many different levels of where kids are at emotionally and socially and with language and cognitive development and physical development. And it's complicated being a teacher. I definitely don't Mm -hmm. want to make it like that's easy either.
2: Mm -mm. No, definitely not. So um, on the flip side, then what do you think parents you know, could be doing to improve their relationships with their own schools? Well,
0: I think um, kind of what we just talked about is interesting about you had your idea and your husband had his idea and I have my idea. We all as parents have had different experiences and sometimes in the educational setting, we've had good experiences or bad experiences as a child and as a parent. And I think just um, acknowledging that and thinking about reflecting on our own experiences is really, really helpful, because that might help us know what our triggers are, or what we're most passionate about. Um, You know, for example, I am super passionate about child development. And now that I know that certain behaviors that my son has that get him into trouble at school are actually kind of driven by his development, you know, when he gets nervous, or upset about something, he tries humor, that's like his, you know, coping strategy right now at age 13 and that is not popular with the teachers and administrators and and um as a parent (laughs) so I um having had a mom who was a teacher know how frustrating it can be but so I also so I can relate to what the teachers are saying about how my kid cracking up the class is not helpful but I also Um, know what my kid is going through. And so I tried to reflect a lot on both sides and, you know, really make sure that um, I can see a lot of different perspectives or at least acknowledge that a lot of perspectives are in the room. And if I've had run-ins with the school, I really do try to communicate well, um, you know, and not leave a negative atmosphere in my wake if I've gone in and if I've been upset about something or if school has been upset about something, I really try to make sure that we can have conversations because that flow of communication is so important. And there's a lot of dialogue in a family engagement field about making sure that your first communication with the family isn't about something negative. And, you know, don't call the family for the first time to say, hey, your kid cheated on a test or your kid didn't show up for school or whatever. Um, and the same goes for families, too. If you want the school to understand your child, it's really, really helpful to talk about the good things about your child before you come up to school and criticize the teacher for something. Um, and I'll give you an example. Earlier this year, my, my middle school son was having a little bit of um, a challenge. It was around talking in class, and the teachers organized... A, meeting with him and me and five teachers and an administrator and it was a daunting environment for me and my son but he had had a piano recital the weekend before and so I brought in a video of him playing piano and he was sitting very erect and he was you know having a great recital and and so I Started the meeting off by just saying, let's all just talk about what we did over the weekend to kind of get to know each other a little bit better. And so the teachers all shared something, and I shared something, and I shared my son's video, much to his embarrassment. But it also helped just to see that we were all people. We had all had experiences over the weekend, you know, and that really helped set a different tone than what it could have been, which was to come in there and talk about why he didn't have enough discipline to stop talking. Well, clearly, he did have enough discipline to do something like prepare for a piano recital. But um, I think there were other things getting involved or getting in the way of him um, having the self-control to avoid talking in class like there were other things pushing him harder than his self-control could handle and so I think it's really important as parents too to come in with this positive mindset knowing that other people in the room do want to help your child and there are things that you can share with them about your child that make their job a little bit easier.
2: Um, It's interesting that you say that because we a lot of schools are aware that they need to send out positive Um, information or make a positive connection uh, early on. A lot of schools that do home visits, you know, make it a very specific point, you know, of doing that, which is, has been really helpful for districts that have been doing it. So it it seems like, I mean, even if they're not doing it consistently, they are at least aware of that, but it didn't really occur to me that parents should be doing the same thing, (laughs) you know, because I'm trying to think back and I'm thinking, you know, I wonder how many interactions I've had with teachers, that were positive on the first go um, versus a problem that needs to get addressed. And I bet at best it's 50-50. I guess there's not really much of an opportunity. I almost wonder that kids sometimes will create videos at the beginning of the year kind of explaining who they are, what they did over the summer. And I almost feel like I should be jumping right in behind her on her phone and saying, hey, this is me, you know, this is what we did. So that (laughs) it does establish, you know, that more positive reaction. I think parents feel sometimes like they can't go into that. It's impressive that you went into that meeting and set the tone like that. Whereas usually when parents come into a meeting at the school, they feel like the meeting is very much happening at them. And, you know, they're just a participant rather than, you know, feeling empowered to set or more positive tone um, in that. And I don't think that a lot of people really think about that. I know I certainly don't.
0: Yeah. And I think schools don't necessarily expect it, but I Again, that goes back to the expectations, you know, if you have these really early conversations and parents do feel empowered, then um, you have a mutual sense of responsibility to create a relationship that's workable. And I think parents will rise up and take that, um, that challenge, if you will, and, you know, come in and do their best to make sure that everybody's on the same page. I really think that both sides can do that. And I think parents want to do that. They just don't know that they can.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's true. Um, so it's
1: we've
2: covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to me too that you used uh the word trigger, you know, for parents when they talk about certain things in their their background and their experience, because that's so funny. I saw that I've had just a number of things. I've got a middle school or two, and uh it's it's very challenging for me because I moved the kids into the district knowing that education was a top priority. I mean, in the middle of a housing crisis, it was like a terrible financial decision. Um, But it was really, really important to me, you know, that they had like, I live for this stuff. It's, you know, it's critical. And so my two kids are so completely different from each other. And my middle schooler, she sounds like a little bit like your son, she does things differently. And it doesn't fit the mold very well. And when things like actively get in her way when there's an, an actual obstacle to her becoming this like incredible person that, you know, she's got these incredible gifts and she's really unique and nuanced and she just doesn't fit in the system <laughs> very well at all. And boy, that's a trigger for me because the reason I got into the field is because my experience was so boring as a student and it wasn't real world experience and I, it just, it did not serve me. And so what I watch her, all I can think about is, you know, what that experience was like for me. And so I got to wonder when you see pairs that can be um, calm in situations, it may not just be like their (laughs) personality. It might be that this is not a big issue for them, but you find (laughs) that that issue that really gets at something very deeply personal. And all of a sudden, that's what just flipped and it's not pretty. So.
0: Yes, I think you're right. I mean, we definitely, you see that around things like um, gifted education where parents feel so passionate sometimes about their child's capability and whether or not the schools are serving them or or literacy education or things like that. And I mean, the passion is great, but yeah, there does have to be a way to channel it into something that's productive rather than just getting everybody else (laughs) spun up
2: (laughs) around each other. Right, right, actually finding a decent solution. So it, kind of circling back to your book to wrap this up, what are you know some of the top takeaways or the big surprises or the big ahas that you highlight in the book? There, there are a lot
0: of reflection prompts and a lot of conversation starters um, for educators. And I think that there are going to be some um, some self-reflections for people where they're going to not realize that they had um, been making it inadvertently more difficult for their partners in terms of things like setting up a welcoming atmosphere or making sure that things were accessible. And for parents, likewise, I think there's going to be some surprises that maybe coming into the classroom every week and volunteering and, you know, spending all your waking hours doing something for your child's teacher is not necessarily the best way to help the entire school community, because although you're really helping that teacher, you might be um, sort of enabling the school not to spend its resources as wisely as it could. Or, you know, there might be some inefficiencies in the system that could be addressed if volunteers like you weren't giving so generously of your time and, and resources. And. Um, And that creates, you know, kind of tears of parents, the parents who can spend a lot of money and time at the school versus those who maybe can't. So I think there's a lot of reflection that can happen on all sides, parents and teachers and administrators, just around what you're doing, probably very well-intentioned out of the best, having your child's best interest at heart or the student's best interest at heart. Um, But it might not be as productive as you want it to be, and it might be for reasons that you haven't even considered people really have been um responding to us that um that there's a lot of ways that they can improve their own service delivery or that they can improve their own interactions coming into the setting as a parent um just through thinking about most authentic self but also recognizing that there are other people in this space and what might be best for the whole community and that has been something that we're super proud of and i'm speaking totally for the I was the developmental editor in the book. I'm totally speaking for the book's co-author, whose name is Lindsay Shaw, and she is a social worker who has spent a lot of time working in schools and in the family engagement setting, and she knows a lot about child development. And so I'm totally putting, kind of channeling her words, but um, that's something that she, uh, from her vantage point within the system, has really seen, too, that um, just taking a moment to look at other people's perspectives can be hugely, hugely important. And this book really helps you do that.
2: Yeah. And I love any book that has discussion questions, reflection questions, um, different ways to explore further. It's helpful when they have examples or case studies, but it's still being talked at you. And I think what that format does is it, it seems like it, it's the um the premise of parents as teachers in general is you know this is a lot of great information now what do you think you know how does this apply to your specific situation so i could see how that would um really turn into a great book club book or um they have those a lot um have some pd around it just to kind of ask these questions because higher ed level i'll tell you we don't generally speaking implement things like listening skills. And you know, you'll see case studies periodically where you have to try to understand what's going on with a parent, but it's not a huge focus. And so this is something that I think a lot of people go into the field and are not equipped, you know, to do this themselves. And so having uh, books like that, that give good information, but also ask really good questions. And the real insight always comes from answering those questions. Okay, so let's wrap it up by just, I always ask guests a couple of, you know, fun, interesting questions. So uh, the first one, and this is always one of my favorite questions. I love it when people pick this one. If you could create one new job for a school, what would it be?
0: Yeah, it would be a total unicorn job, but it would be around family engagement, a family engagement liaison type person who is also really well-versed in child development and could help everybody understand that There isn't a cookie cutter student in the school and having everybody engage around the kids at all their different, messy, beautiful levels of development would be like my dream. And again, I go back to the book's author, Lindsay Shaw, because she really is kind of that unicorn person where she was a social worker who worked with kids in the school, but could talk to parents in a way that the parents felt honored and accepted and respected and I wish every school could have one of her because I think they would just be much more magical places for parents if they had if every school had a staff member like that.
2: You know, that reminds me of something. I actually saw a role Somewhat similar to that, certainly not with the um, the development expertise. It was really just kind of a general educator. But when I started working at Georgia Virtual, which was an online program, we were just getting started. It was in two thousand five. Nobody knew anything. You know, we were just kind of searching through the dark. You know, in this environment. But one of the things that they wanted to have was a school facilitator. So even though the state had a an online school, every school had a facilitator, and this facilitator had access to. All of the students' courses, all of their grades, both at the school, their home school, and through our program. And what ended up happening is this person was just focused on this child and they could get a huge view. So they would, in some cases, they would go interview the parents and the students together. They would learn more about what was going on. They would schedule some time and actually talk to them about their activities. And so they were the best possible advocate for that student because they saw 360 what's going on with this kid. And too often, I think the way our systems are set up, we don't have that person that can be an advocate. And in some cases, parents can do that, because they can kind of see the grades and things with power school and stuff like that. But having somebody who really understands that kid, and can explain to the rest of us, you know, in different roles, what's going on, um, so that we can make better decisions, because we have to make decisions for the group. But, um, but we've got a really informed advocate, you know, for that student. And that was, That was remarkable. I was so impressed with how that turned out. Yeah, I love that idea. That's great. Good for them. Mm -hmm. It was very cool. Okay, so the next one I recharge by.
0: Yes, I recharge by putting myself in situations where I am not the expert, where I'm unfamiliar, where I'm going to learn something new. And that can be traveling to another country, but it could also be staying here in St. Louis and going to. Um, the Polish fish fry, (laughs) where the workers at the church speak Polish and they're serving Polish food, or it could be going to a different neighborhood or listening to a different type of music. Um, I find that getting out of my daily patterns a little bit really jumpstarts my creativity and helps me synthesize ideas in different ways. And I also just meet people and have interesting conversations. But um, I love to travel and I wish I could do it every single weekend, (laughs) but being realistic, you can actually expose yourself to a lot of new experiences right here in St. Louis, and that is how I recharge, and I really am grateful to be here in this city with so many opportunities
2: to do that. And the more you get out, the more you realize you don't know this city at all. (laughs) There are so many little neighborhoods and organizations, and new things are cropping up all the time, and You're right. Getting out there. Um, and it's a good way to get anything that gets you out of autopilot is gonna be a little more refreshing than it was. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. So last one, um, you do a lot of editing. And so what is it? It's kind of similar to, we have a lot of teachers that listen. So I often ask them, you know, your favorite place to grade. That's, you know, a little unusual. So what, where's your favorite place to edit and get that work done? Well, it's funny because
0: my mom was an English teacher and she was grading all the time and she would come to my activities and she would have her little tote bag with her and her red pen and she would whip it out. And I do that now at my kids' activities, my one son plays hockey. And I used to edit a lot in front of the TV as well, especially with proofreading and something that was easy. But now that you can watch football so easily on your phone, I tend to work at my desk more. I also tend to have football going more in the background. So <laughs> in a way, technology is <laughs> has brought me back to my desk, but it's because I've been able to bring the football game back with me. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's so, funny, so that's I always love- my answer. Yeah, that's my answer too. I, I get more done during football season than I do any other time because it goes on for hours. I can sit there and uh, kind of pay attention, but not really. And I I was born in Wisconsin. So now I like have this sixth sense when there's a big play coming. Like I don't even have to be looking at the screen. All of a sudden I can like hear the noise level or something and think, okay, what's happening? Are we on a third, and, you know, 10 situation? or
0: So, so um exactly the same. Yeah, I love football and I can just tell by the tone of the voice or the excitement in the crowd what's going to happen and I'll break off (laughs) so -hmm. so hopefully none of my employers are watching this and they won't know that I'm editing their work while watching football and maybe (laughs) drinking beer I don't know
2: (laughs) that's good I mean it gives you a little break so that you know you're you're not constantly just focused on this and I'm sure grading and editing are very similar that I always do things like that to put myself in a better mood when I'm grading otherwise <laughs> the grade might be a little bit harsher than, than it normally is, but I wonder, That's you know, with editing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does save me from being upset that there's yet one more comma in the wrong spot or whatever the case may be.
2: <laughs> uh, drive me up the wall. <laughs> Okay, well, Amy, it was really great chatting with you today. We really appreciate you being on the show. Everybody, I will definitely put all of the links to your book and to a lot of other resources that we talked about today
1: below. So thank you so much again for coming on. Thanks, Amy. Okay, everyone, I hope you heard something new and useful today. If you want to learn more or have an idea for a future episode of Rotten Apples, Just go to EducateSTL.org where you'll find resources and links from today's chat and fun news and event information for educators all over the STL. Thanks for listening and connecting with all of us rotten apples and for doing what you can to get better every single day. See you soon.